Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Packaging Brothers podcast. My name is Brandon. Today's guest is Ashley and Sierra from In Bold Print. They are building a measurable scale for sustainable packaging for the beauty industry, and it's awesome. So I think you guys will enjoy this if you're into sustainable packaging and into innovative solutions. I think it's going to be a great episode for you. So here we go. Well, Sierra and Ashley, welcome to the Packaging Brothers podcast. Hello. Thank you for having us. I'm really excited to hear all about In Bold Print and what you guys have been working on. So can you just break it down for us? What is it? What are you trying to accomplish? Where is the need for this product? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you about In Bold Print first, what we do, and then we're happy to talk about where it fits in and what value we're adding. But we've built a platform that plugs into brand and retailer websites to dynamically score their products based on how sustainable they are. That score is represented really simply. It's just a 1 to 10 scale so that consumers can actually take in that information and easily discover products that match with their values. Whatever they care about, that's what we're trying to represent. But behind the scenes, we're evaluating the whole life cycle of that product from sourcing all the way to end of life which ends up meaning that we're looking at somewhere around 800 plus data points per product and simplifying it into that one score that we call a planet impact score. We really wanted to meet consumers at the point of sale and give them the transparency that they're asking for. And at the same time, we also wanted to help businesses share their sustainability story, assess their own portfolio for impact, and really build that trust and loyalty with their modern consumers. Boy, that's great. I I mean... In the world of kind of talking about sustainability and the amount of claims of what is sustainable and what is not sustainable, I mean, in order to take all of that information and data and boil it down to one number that is going to dictate kind of the level of eco-friendliness of their product, it sounds daunting. It sounds difficult, almost impossible to do. How did you, like, what's the methodology without giving away too much of your secret sauce? Like, how does it, how does it work? Yeah, honestly, that's, why we started the business, because it is daunting. It's impossible to find a standard definition of what sustainable means, or it felt that way. Uh, Sierra and I were just looking for something as simple as like a face wash. And it was like, well, how do I evaluate the ingredients? And this one's in a glass jar, but that one's in plastic jar, but that one says it has PCRs. So how do I know what to pick? So we sat down and said, you know, this needs to be easy if we want everybody to get behind it. So how do we make it simple, but use a lot of data so we can actually validate things? Um, And what we reiterate to ourselves constantly is how well does it tie back to keeping a circular economy? So that means evaluating what it looks like at sourcing and then what happens when you put it back into the planet. And although it sounds complicated with all of the data and the whole life cycle, when you start to think about it that way, it gets a little bit easier. So when we're evaluating ingredients, are they bio-renewable? And then are they biodegradable? So if we're taking something out of the earth, are we making sure that it can come back? Or are we just taking something out that's never going to replenish itself? And so we just try to keep all of our metrics within that perspective. We saw a lot of people starting to talk about carbon, but that was the only metric that we saw published out there. So somebody might be looking at a bag of lentils And they were looking at, okay, what's the carbon impact of lentils? And that is really important, but there's also a water impact and soil degradation. And then there's the packaging and then the thing inside it. 
So we're trying to look more holistically at the entire product across the entire portfolio, but not ask consumers to do all that research every single time they want to buy one product. Okay. So if I'm hearing this correctly, it's not just the packaging. It's not just the product. It's everything and everything that goes along with each one of those products. So the transportation, the collection of the raw material, the actual manufacturing and production of the different types of products that are in that product. Yes, yep. we all those things. So we look at sourcing and manufacturing, transport use, waste, and that's what we're calling the entire life cycle and lots and lots of metrics underneath that. How likely is it that companies are going to be sharing full disclosure, all of this information that you're going to be really needing in order to create this final number? Honestly, we've been received well so far. But one of the things that we do a little bit differently is we are pulling about 80% of the data about those products without any engagement from the brands. We can go and scrape the websites, find the ingredients. We can get a lot of information ourselves without needing any of their help. So for example, when we grab, we're talking about the packaging, we can flip it upside down and see what type of plastic it is. And a lot of brands are now telling us what percent PCR it is, if it is that kind of thing. Based on that, we can tell like, is that plastic actually recyclable? If it's compostable, is it commercially compostable or is it residential? And then we have a lot of evaluation on top of that. So we can get about 80% of it ourselves. And then we engage a brand and say, hey, this is where we're at. Can you help us with that last 20%? And a lot of them are willing to do it because um, it helps get that visibility and the data they didn't have before. Yeah. I mean, I have to think that a lot of the brands that that you're connecting with, they have customers that are really interested in obviously sustainability and, and then the transparency. I mean, you're almost a third-party company that's coming in independently saying, hey, we're just going to review what this product is according to our, and this is the score that we're going to give it. And of all the face washes or all the bags of lentils, like these are the ones that are, that have the highest scores. And these are the ones that have the lower scores, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you're looking at like a retail website, for instance, you can filter by sustainable products, but more so than that, you can sort by how sustainable something is. So you can even start saying, well, if I'm going to buy a bag of lentils or a face wash, I can start shopping by, well, what's the most sustainable one? And on the company side, they need help defining what that even means too. And they need help defining all the different areas that you know are hotspots for consumers and, and for themselves. And so we can help kind of map back both the data for the companies and the experience for the consumers. Yeah. Now, I know there are some adverse relationships between different sustainable goals and different types of packaging. How have you kind of navigated through those types of things Like where, you know, glass has a higher carbon footprint than plastic, but generally glass is perceived as being more sustainable for end of life because you're not putting a bunch of microplastics into the environment or, or when it breaks down, it's just returning to its kind of natural substrates, sand, limestone, soda ash. So have you kind of taken some of these things that are just kind of a little bit more complex to be able to boil it down to, you know, a number or two? Well, I think part of it is that because we're evaluating it across the life cycle, we get to evaluate it multiple times. So if we're talking about that glass jar, yes, we, you know, we know that it's great on one side, but then we have the opportunity. So let's say it does great in the sourcing category. Then we get to evaluate it on the waste side again. How likely is it to be recycled? How well does it stand up? Like aluminum is great. You know, it it is more infinitely recyclable than some of the plastics where we lose a big percentage of them. 
So I think having the opportunity to evaluate the same thing a few times in different sections allows us to manage the trade-offs a little bit better. Okay, great. So for all those listening that are in front of a computer, please go to inboldprint.co because this is really cool. There's a there's a part down where it says Planet Impact Scorecard. And there's just on the website, it gives a little sample of what it is. And so there's an overall score of like 6.8 out of 10. And then there's a few different categories here. So you have sourcing and manufacturing, which has its own score. Transport has its own score. Use, waste, company commitments. And then all of those are kind of taken then averaged out or whatever to where you get the final number. Is that is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And then ultimately too, you can kind of drill into some of those things and see some of the highlights, you know, what do these things mean? Why are they positive? Why do they get the score it did? And companies can do the same. Hmm. What's been some of the kind of the biggest learnings or the biggest obstacles that you guys have had to go through in order to bring this thing to life? I think as people, we, we come from a data and analytics background. So for us, we didn't come from the sustainability background where we already had these preconceived notions of what that word even means. So some of the stuff that Ashley was talking about earlier, you know, we had to navigate all those things. We had to create this framework to figure out what all goes into it. And we saw some people in the market doing, you know, evaluations on ingredients or packaging, but it wasn't really combined into this one holistic thing. So we had to learn about the entire life cycle. And at the same time, nobody was really doing it automatically. Nobody was really pulling all these different data sources together. So we had to go out and find those data sources and find experts to evaluate our own criteria. So I think that was a really big learning opportunity for the two of us. And, you know, that that's been a huge growth journey, but I think on, on the other side, brands are struggling with the same thing. Consumers are struggling with the same thing. So it's actually kind of a uniting struggle. (laughs) We're all trying to figure out Hmm. what it means and what we do about it and how we navigate it quickly. And when Ashley and I started this company, we did it in the middle of quarantine. So we had all the time in the world to learn these things and to evaluate every single product that we look at. But the world moves fast and the everyday consumer doesn't have time to do all those things. And so now it's all about, well, how do we move fast enough to make sure that we get out to market fast enough to make sure that we help those consumers, that we help those brands who are being asked by those consumers to put out more information. So you know where it started, a lot of it being the sustainability knowledge now, I think a lot of it is speed. Hmm. Backing up a little bit, I have to think that you've had to have some training, some education to kind of prepare for this amount of data analysis. What is your background, schooling, any kind of like work experience you brought into this new venture? Yeah, we both went to Loyola. Sierra and I have been friends for seven years. We met at school. We both studied information systems and marketing. Information systems was early at the time and it's very data focused. One of our professors actually introduced us and was like, you two, you like data, go compete in this uh, data competition. Really? Yeah. And be on a team together. Yeah. How fun. And we were very much not friends at the time, but we agreed to do it because why not? We were going to California to compete in a data competition for free. And we you know, were locked in a hotel room together in California for a week and emerged best friends. Um, so then while we were there, you know, it was our senior year, we're talking about what we're going to do next and what kind of careers we want. And I had decided to go into an analytics tech consulting firm. And I was telling Sierra about how great it was. The idea of unlimited PTO was new and seemed awesome. So I was going to do it. And Sierra vetted it with me. And we decided to go together. Um, Sierra actually started before I did because she's an overachiever and graduated early. 
So I met her there. We did the analytics and data consulting for about five years. And then we, we've always known we wanted to be entrepreneurs. So we left consulting to go into the startup world, to get a different perspective. When you're consulting, you have a consultant hat on and you look at businesses from the outside. And we really wanted to get on the inside and think like we were running a business. So we did. And we, I went into FinTech um, at Amount and Sierra went to Tempest. And we did very similar. Uh, everything we did was data-driven, but very different roles. And then in November, we quit our jobs and started in bold print. All right. Uh, so that was Ashley's story, Sierra. <laughs> is that accurate? <laughs> Yeah, it is accurate. You know, having two of us on any call, we often get asked for our backgrounds, you know, separately or to do separate introductions. And it's so hard to separate the two of us. We work very horizontally. We tend to have these very complementary skill sets in the way that we work. But, you know, the resume of it all is very similar. So it's such an interesting thing. And, you know, I I personally think that we have a great co-founding team for very nuanced reasons, you know, with that trade-off. But no, it's definitely an accurate story. She represents it really well. So I always let her tell it. That's great. That's fun. So you just are like, ditto. Yeah. Ditto is accurate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, what else would you like to share about in bold print and kind of where it is right now and where it's going in the future? Like, I think there's a big vision, right? You know, we are really, we've talked a lot about trying to make this work for the everyday consumer, trying to make this work for brands. You know, even now, a lot of what we're talking to to brands about is they have to get shelf space at retailers. And a lot of retailers are talking about how they want a percentage of their portfolio to be sustainable products. And in order to do that, they have to define what sustainable means and how they get there and how many of their products today meet that criteria and how many they go find new ones that, that do. So there's this ongoing conversation between retailers and brands about shelf space, between retailers and consumers about that shopping experience, between brands and consumers about whether or not these products match their values. And so really the the big vision here is to make it easy on all of them to make conscious living and unconscious behavior. So that's something that we're really trying to march toward in the market. And you know we're getting a lot of really early traction and it's awesome to see that feedback. So it's exciting to see where the company will go, where the market will go, and where you know the supply chain and everything else around it will go as well. Yeah. I'd like to dig into packaging a little bit just because we're into packaging. Of course. Based on your analysis and the different examples or samples that you've done some research on, what is kind of your hierarchy for the most sustainable types of packaging and the least sustainable types? Well, it honestly depends on the packaging that we're evaluating. So again, of course, we rank recycled plastics or actually any non-virgin materials higher than virgin materials because we want to encourage the reuse. But not only are we saying, hey, having 50% PCR is great, for those companies that have a refill program and are actually gaining adoption, then we consider that to be great and equal to using PCR. In the case if they are not getting adoption, then it's a little bit of a, a cheat, you know, because if you have 5% adoption, then just use the PCR so that we're reusing. But we do validate that kind of stuff with the brands and retailers that we work with. We also, and on the sourcing side, obviously, we like the, the glass because it has a lower sourcing footprint, but aluminum is very much more recyclable. So we would weight that higher depending on how much we're using as well. 
We work with a retailer who is a zero waste retailer, zero waste grocer. She's wonderful. And she has glass jars that she fills up with all her products. She buys them in bulk and they come in compostable paper bags to her. She fills them with the glass and then she sells them. And then her uh, customers bring them back. She has like a 75% adoption rate, Wow, which is wonderful. We've seen so many low ones. But then we also look at like how, what kind of footprint is it on the transportation side? You know, like there's two sets of transportation, getting the materials that you need to build the uh, plastic or the glass or whatever it is, and then getting it to the retail side and the heavier they are, you know, you're looking at bigger carbon footprints. So I would say the hierarchy isn't as wonderful as the one that you've laid out with Credo with the refills, but it's based on where it is for that product. How much is being reused? Is it recyclable? And is it compostable? And then what goes in between? There's also a lot of the reduction of uh, certain types of packaging, right? So like some of these companies, they're really investing a lot in their primary packaging and reducing their secondary packaging, or they're finding more innovative ways to have secondary packaging made out of waste from other products. And so there's a lot of different ways that we see brands representing, you know, what it is that they're trying to achieve. So ultimately, obviously they want to reduce their impact and it just looks so different across the different brands. And, you know, I've seen that some of your posts, Brandon, about some of the awesome materials that you guys are creating as well. And so it's really interesting to see the innovation in that space. Yeah. Thank you. You know, when we talk a lot about the recyclability of, of packaging, there's kind of a simplistic definition of, is it technically recyclable? Like, could it be recycled? And we've taken more of a holistic, true definition of recycling, where it has to have a high likelihood that it's going to be captured, processed, reused, remanufactured into something that is then purchased in the marketplace. Like if it doesn't go through that whole thing, we feel that it's a little dishonest to say it's quote unquote, you know, recyclable. I'm guessing that you've had to really understand the waste stream and what is actually recycled and what's not recycled. And that probably goes into the score of the end of life of different packaging materials. Yeah, exactly. We um, earlier, I kind of mentioned, we have a bunch of different data sources, but we also work with experts, you know, who are just kind enough to come and consult and, and talk to us about not only the waste stream from a very typical perspective, but some of the new innovations that are out there and possible. So we kind of look at the spectrum of, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about, what's the likelihood of something to actually be recycled, what percentage emerged across the country, because obviously we all know a lot of it comes down to the locality of where things are getting recycled. And that's very hard to track for a retailer or a brand that has consumers all over the place. And so a lot of what we're looking at is, you know, that that kind of percentage and looking at what's possible and how are things changing. And so we do a lot of things we industry benchmark and try to figure out, well, what's possible now um, and what are people going to achieve in the future? And part of the beauty of it all is we have to look at all of those things over time. Every six months, probably to every year, it's going to change. And so we try to track that over time as well by relying on those data sources, but sometimes they're slow to catch up. So also relying on experts that kind of help us there. Yeah. And then on the front end, I'm guessing a four ounce PET bottle that's made here in the US, filled in the US, assuming it's all on the West Coast, we're not trucking things back and forth, versus buying it from Asia and having it shipped all the way over and then transported around. I know this is kind of a generic question, but how much of a difference does that make in the front end on like the final score of like a sustainability score for that particular piece of package? It's pretty substantial. We evaluate the packaging at equal to the product itself. So 50% of the score is the packaging. 
Um, so if you're say, for example, it was, well, regardless of the number of scores, I get too excited about the number of metrics and the data that we're using, but really each line item gets repeated because you're seeing it across the, the whole supply chain. So if you're using that plastic where we are looking at the materials that you had to get to use the plastic. So you're going to get docked there because we had to record the transportation there. Then you're going to get docked based on how heavy it is to get to the manufacturer to make it. So the packaging, the distance traveled um, has a heavy weight on the actual score. And that's not just for the packaging, it's for the ingredients, whatever actual product it is as well. So I'm guessing that that there's been more of a push with the sustainability to do things more locally as well, whether it's US or Central South America. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wherever possible, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Especially during these times when the supply chain is so disrupted, it can be pretty tricky, but that's great. How have you kind of balanced the difference between focusing in on carbon emissions and packaging waste? We essentially, well, so, and it's, this is again for packaging and for um, ingredients and anything else that goes in the product. So what we look at it is is across that life cycle. So we're looking at both the inputs and the outputs just to simplify it down. So when we're looking at like an ingredient, for example, just because there's so many metrics that tie back to ingredients, we're looking at for a crop for lentils, take the example from earlier, we look at the carbon emissions, but we also look at water usage and soil degradation and, you know, waste at the end of the life cycle as well. For food, it's a little funny because technically you're supposed to at least consume it all, even though there's a big food waste area, but with packaging, you know, it's, it's not a consumable. So you are having an end of life that you have to factor in. So we, that entire waste section essentially is looking at, well, what does end of life look like for these materials? So in the example that Ashley just gave for the plastic, in the sourcing and manufacturing, we're looking at the carbon emissions, you know, that it takes to create this packaging material. And then the waste section, we're looking at, well, what happens when you throw it away? Is it something that's recyclable? And obviously we just threw, went through the definitions of what that means, but is it something that's recyclable? What are the carbon emissions associated with recycling that even? And how often is it taken into these mirrors? And if it's not recyclable, then what does that look like in the landfill? If it's compostable is, you know, how do we count that in, right? Because that's something that is really complicated. It's not readily accessible to a lot of consumers. Um, and then we're looking, of course, at curbside and commercial. There's just so many factors that go into what this looks like at end of life. And I think we have a huge focus as a society right now on reducing waste and reducing plastic use. And, you know, those things are, are all hugely impactful. And so we try to represent that in the waste category. But the balance that you're mentioning comes in place because we look at that sourcing and manufacturing as well. Got it. You are a woman-owned business. You're also venture-backed, which I think is really interesting. How did you go about raising capital? What was the process like? How did you pick the right partner? How did they find you? There's a lot of brand owners and founders that listen to this show. And you know that's one of the big topics out there is there's so many brands and so much money and, and they're all trying to find a home. You know, So how did that process work? Yes. Our experience was a little bit backwards. I would suggest to any founder, like we're always welcome to talk through advice, but our experience is a little bit backwards. We obviously had a great number of years in the consulting world and we got to meet a lot of wonderful people. Sierra and I always knew that we wanted to do the entrepreneurship thing one day and we were very vocal about it. So I would say most of the people that we worked with in our consulting days knew that as well. And you know, some of the wonderful people that we worked with said, 
a couple of the guys that we worked with actually said, well, when you're ready one day, give me a call and we'll help you out. We want you to start a business. We'll help put the bill. So, you know, in the future, I'm here. And, you know, people can promise things and make commitments, but you never know. It just, it was a really cool thing to hear. And I was humbled, but I would not, didn't necessarily think it would be today. And then a year or two later, Cedar and I had this idea in quarantine and we really wanted to make moves on it. We really wanted to have more purpose and build something together and make a difference. And so we, in November, decided to quit our jobs and we made the call and said, hey, um, do you remember me? I wanted to start a company and you said you would fit the bill. Any chance you want to uh, work with us and invest in us? And they said, yeah, absolutely, we do. Uh, so that was November and we funded in December. They, their backgrounds are in uh, supply chain logistics. So it works really well for us since we're evaluating the whole life cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wow. As we kind of bring this episode, I'm I'm super impressed with what you have built and created. I think there's a massive need for what you're doing. And I think it'll also really heal a lot of the animosity that's in the sustainability space right now too, with the lack of transparency, the amount of greenwashing that, that's happening and that continues to happen in order to have a third-party company like you guys that can really take a really complex topic that has lots of different data points and to be able to simplify that into one score. I mean, I think there's, I think there's real, real value there. So thank you for starting this. And I know the road is going to be difficult. Like the road of entrepreneurship is never, is never smooth. And so I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah. As we kind of close up, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? No, we definitely, you know, we love hearing from people and engaging with people. We've gotten such awesome ideas um, from people who are following us on social and engaging. So definitely reach out if you're, uh, you mentioned other founders and brands listening, if you guys have questions, uh, we're happy to talk through more of our journey, but we love to hear from people. Awesome. Well, again, uh, the website is inboldprint.co. Ashley, Sierra, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for listening to that episode and a special thanks to InBold Print for coming in and telling us all about their solutions. I really encourage you guys to connect with them. As always, if you have any questions, topics, ideas for us, we'd love to hear from you. Take good care.